0: Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host, I'm
1: Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and Josh. I'll invest in any project of yours as long as you're murdering people to get it done. Oh, but
0: but we're we're opposed to murder on this podcast, as we as but we often we're say. pro art. True, true. And that is the yes. dilemma that we're facing in this episode. Because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 1953. And we are here at the pick from our producer, David Rosen. So, uh, Dave, what did you pick for us? I picked House of Wax.
1: House of Wax. House right of starting. Wax. Yeah. Is that is
0: that, is that
2: it?
1: it? Is that the impression? I don't think that's I have a, I don't yeah, think I have, a, a, yeah, I have one the Giro will you come? Yeah, it's not, it's, no. it feels like Roger from uh, American yeah. Dad Show or oh, something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. You're
0: not, you're not getting it. That's, that's, no. that's Vincent Price, or it would be if Jason could do that. Impression. Yeah,
1: yeah. That one will lose me. Yeah. That's
0: okay. But it is a, he does have a very distinct voice. And this is sort of the beginning of his career as this iconic horror figure, which is what really most people know him as uh, still. And I feel like that that voice is a huge part of why he became such a big horror figure, that it just has this, this sort of regal yet creepy tone to it. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like either
1: him or Paul Lynn could have been center square or horror <laughs> icon. So.
0: Yeah, all right. <laughs> so this movie stars Vincent Price as Henry Jarrett, who is a uh, sculptor, in wax and uh as jason implied he uses some unconventional means for his wax sculptures that do involve murdering people and kind of covering them in wax or uh using parts of them within the wax sculptures i don't know if we got all the exact mechanics of it but it's i no mean good for he, the people
1: no unless you know they want to live forever as a piece of art who wants that though mm, i don't know <laughs> yeah maybe he needed to
0: to like put an ad on uh Craigslist or something and find the right kind of sex fetishist who would go for this. That yeah, it's like perfect. he could
1: have met the people from like Crimes of the Future or something like
0: that. <laughs> <But> I think <laughs> like, we could have been onto something. Quite the crossover. What if David Cronenberg directed the latest House of Wax remake? That Crimes of Wax. Music. Crimes of Wax. <laughs> I'm so, in. I, I want to see that. Yeah, sadly this movie is not nearly as kinky as as we're describing there. Um <laughs> it was however, it's interesting to me and I think this was completely by accident. That we started this season with the first movie ever shown in CinemaScope, The Robe, which was not the reason we talked about it. It was the box office champion, so we picked it for that reason. And this movie is really the first major wide 3D release. It is the first color 3D film from a a major studio. It was from Warner Brothers, and it followed the first 3D release of, of any kind, really, called Wanna Devil. And So that I don't think, Dave, was that a reason that you picked this or was that just sort of a coincidence?
2: Uh, It was a total coincidence, but I do have a quick story in regards to that being the first 3D movie. My dad, uh, when I told him we were talking about this on the podcast, uh, he said to tell you guys how scary the ping pong ball scene was (laughs) when they all went on opening weekend to see this movie. Wow.
1: Oh, yeah. That must have been amazing not knowing how that technology would work and. Uh, wait, you mean the paddle ball scene? The, yeah, the paddle right. ball with the, with the ball yeah. bouncing at the screen. Which I don't yeah. think is meant to be
0: scary. No, no it's but, uh,
1: like but it, fun, but you know. Right. Yeah, but there, so there's a paddle ball barker outside of the the house of wax and he gets people uh, interested by doing all these cool tricks. And, you know, if you've never seen 3D before and these paddle balls are like flying towards your head, I could see that as a. Something that would be scary that that uh, but that that was a cool part of the movie, considering, you know, the format that we're taking here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you watch it now in 2D and it's just kind of dumb, but <laughs> I'm sure I think about, you know, you you all, those stories about the early days of cinema when the Lumiere brothers showed the the train arriving at the station and people all thought it was going to hit them or something like that. Right. Maybe that was kind of like what your dad experienced with the paddle balls. It I
1: love, like Josh, it. how you say it's kind of dumb as if you're some paddle ball expert who could out paddle this man. I mean, with his I just,
0: I just mean that it has, it's, it's clearly there for the sole purpose of having something come out the screen. It yeah. doesn't have anything to do with the story. It's silly. It's not scary. And then nor that, it, nor is it meant to be scary.
1: But I but. mean, can we just say, isn't that uh, a tradition in 3d movies, you know, it putting is. stuff in there just to get you that uh, rise from your seat? It is. Yes. Which I is a dubious
0: tradition, but it absolutely <laughs> is a tradition. Um, and this movie was a success. I mean, it basically kicked off this huge boom in 3D movies that is one of the signature characteristics of 1950s movies, I think. And so this movie grossed 23.75 million, although that, I believe, includes some re releases um, on its budget of $1 million. But even without those re releases, it was the sixth highest grossing movie of 1953. So quite successful. It is a remake of another Warner Brothers film from 1933 called Mystery of the Wax Museum, um all of which is drawn from a short story and a play called The Wax Works by Charles S. Belden and I actually watched Mystery of the Wax Museum and kind of almost liked it a little more than this one. I would yeah, you face safe. <laughs> the story is the story is very 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 similar and I I think we'll talk about the 2005 remake later, which has almost nothing to do with this story. But the 33 version and then this version follow the story beats pretty closely. There's even some dialogue that's taken verbatim from that version that's in this version. Although the disappointing thing is the, the essentially the main character aside from the villain in that version is this sassy girl reporter played by Glenda Farrell, who is the absolute best thing about that movie and is not a character at all in this version. But it's yeah. fun if you get a chance to see it if you like House of Wax. Are there any paddleball tricks? There are not, because it was not in 3D. <laughs> Although it's in color in 1933. It's in an early. So in a way, it was sort of technologically pioneering as well. It's in an early, like two-strip technicolor. So the colors don't it's not as vibrant as as this movie or as color movies are later. And it it almost adds to sort of the eeriness of it because it's got this minimal, like almost tinted looking color to it. So mm. it's pretty cool, actually.
1: Josh, you mentioned the re-releases 1971 and also in the 1980s.
0: Yes. And of course the 1980s is after the 50s and maybe the, you know, early 2010s or something is the the biggest 3D boom in uh in in theaters and lots of movies in the 1980s with stuff popping off the
1: screen at you annoyingly. Yeah, we're in a downtime for 3D. Maybe, uh, you know, as we're recording this, the Avatar sequel is, you know, taking over the world. We'll see if that leads to a resurgence in uh, 3D. I wonder. Yeah, because it seemed like
0: the first Avatar was part of that, what led to a really big boom like 10, 15 years ago. And uh, I don't know if that's going to happen again. I personally am happy to not have any more 3d well films.
1: didn't they they made so many bad movies or movies that didn't utilize the technology right they were either right. retrofitted for it or just had no point in it so you know i can see why audience is tired of it josh
0: right and i think that's probably something that happened in the 50s and the 80s as well that you know it gets overused and then people get bored of it so Given that this was such an important new technology, just like all of the reviews of The Robe focusing on Cinemascope, basically all the reviews that I found of this movie focus on the 3D aspect, as well as the sound, which was also a new process that was called like Warner Phonic or something like that. It's basically surround sound.
1: It's stereophonic sound.
0: Yeah, but it was something that they that we that unlike 3D, which is still sort of a sporadic thing, that's something that we take for granted that we're going to have that kind of sound in a decent movie theater. But at the time, this was also new. So um, not surprisingly, all these stodgy critics did not like it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Not only were they very skeptical of the technology, but didn't really care for the movie Uh, as a movie either. I can't uh, wait to
1: hear from Louisa May Rutherford and hear what she had to say about it.
0: (laughs) Well, we do have Bosley Crowther, who really hated this. And uh, I had to kind of uh, cherry pick here because he just had so much negativity to to share. So Bosley Crowther in the New York Times said, this mixture of antique melodrama, three-dimensional photography, Ghoulish sensationalism and so-called directed sound raises so many serious questions of achievement and responsibility that a friend of the motion picture medium has ample reason to be baffled and concerned. It isn't only that the story projected in this first major whack with 3D is a bundle of horrifying claptrap that was cheap and obvious 20 years ago nor is it that the stereo photography, while more effective than any other yet seen in theaters, is of but moderate advantage to the film. The most frightening thing about this picture is the thought of the imitation it will encourage if it proves to draw customers to the theater, which it more than likely will do. Some may accept this dismal prospect with the same casualness they accord the idiocies and eventually comic monstrosities of the film, but not so this reviewer. (laughs)
1: Dave, can we just say, like, is Josh just killing it on these uh, emotional, you know, resonance on these reviewers? Like, you should you should take this on tour, Josh. I keep yeah, telling I, you this. So. I, I
0: had I had to capture that. I'm telling you, if you read the whole review, Bosley Crowther sounds like he's foaming at the mouth as he's writing this review. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean that was really good, Josh. Well, it made, thank you. Thank you. It made me just want to give v- Bosley Crowther a Valium, <laughs> and like, <laughs> dude, calm down. It's like a, you know, at at the very worst, it's a gimmicky horror movie, right? And uh, and it's fine as a gimmicky horror movie. I don't love this movie, but that's fine. Like, I, I don't. It's not destroying cinema. And uh, and honestly, like, I felt like he was just like chiding a young Roger Corbin, like, you're going to do all these things and I don't like it. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree with you. And I think with the benefit of hindsight, we know that it was just a gimmick and that it petered out right within a few years in the 1950s. But on the other hand, I feel like he sounds not dissimilar from a lot of critics who bemoan various developments currently, whether that was the return of 3D in the 2010s, or it's the advent of streaming, or any technological developments that seem like they're gonna destroy cinema potentially.
1: (laughs) You should write up Bosley Crowther-style reviews for Oculus Rift projects. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) something like that, or interactive things on Netflix, or I I don't know. So, Jay Carmody in The Washington Evening Star uh, also thought this was destroying cinema. Although I tried to focus a little more on uh, the the less sensationalistic things that he had to say. So he said, in making House of Wax, the second of the full length 3D films, Warner Brothers bears more than a faint resemblance to a man making a beautiful swan dive into an empty swimming pool. Mm. The vital ingredient the company forgot was a story worthy of the new technical process on display. This leaves House of Wax with a wildly disheveled look, in spite of the fact that the actual camera work represents a considerable improvement over Buona Devil, which was the first 3D movie. As a swatch of the future, viewed through Polaroid glasses, it does have its dramatic aspects, no matter how hard those are to perceive through the crust of the ancient screen script. Has anyone seen Buona Devil? Uh, I have not, and I, I briefly looked to see if it was streaming, even though I Probably wouldn't have time to watch it, but I did not. It, it's not streaming.
1: Yeah, Josh, I looked too. Even though I didn't have any time because I was busy doing cool th- things. I was
0: busy watching the House <laughs> of Wax remake.
1: <laughs> um, it's interesting that uh, you wonder what the reviews would have been had they responded to the story, right? Because, like, you know, the robe, as you said, CinemaScope, right? They they talked about how that was so effective uh, for the film. And now this is like the technology they're saying is ineffective, but as we know, like, you know, looking forward, everyone credits, uh, the director, Andre de Toth, because he couldn't see 3d is a very, um, you know, doing a very good job of actually making a film.
0: Right. And, and I kind of think that it's funny that, that they focus on the fact that this is not the right story or it's not worthy of this presentation or something like that, because maybe because of the way that 3D developed and 3D was used so extensively in like kind of schlocky horror movies that that's what we sort of associate it with. But I feel like it is is a fun little maybe sort of throwback horror movie that is perfect for this. And there's another review that I didn't end up quoting because it wasn't overall as interesting, but another reviewer talked extensively about how if 3D is supposed to make things more realistic looking, that why would you make a movie that's in like a period piece and like hokey and not realistic as if I think she was expecting 3D to be used
1: for like naturalistic dramas or something. My dinner with Andre, now in 3D.
0: (laughs) Right, right, and that sounds absurd to us, but you know, at the time there was no precedent for what it would be used for. So I mean, I think it's interesting that that's obviously it went in the very opposite direction. And now we think of a 3D movie would only be for something like Avatar.
1: That's a huge spectacle. Right. Don't you want to see like the next installment of the before (laughs) the Sunrise trilogy, you know, which would be now a quartet uh, in 3D? Wow. It really looks like Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy are walking down the street next to us.
0: (laughs) I mean, on the other hand, like. What if some? What if Richard Linklater took right. that seriously and did it? Like, that? I mean, how would that work
1: out? It would be great because we've seen what he does with rotoscoping, right? Right, so.
0: right. So I just think it's fascinating, just like with Cinemascope or any of these things, to see what people were imagining of this technology at a time when they didn't
1: know how it would go. Yeah. Do you think there were some who were like, "I wish the robe was in 3D. I really wanted to get up close and personal with that crucifixion."
0: <laughs> I'm sure there were, as we've established, critics were crazy for the robe for some reason.
1: You know, of Um, the movies that we watched this season, I, I know I didn't like the movie and it was my pick, but the wild one, had it been more focused on the actual motorcycling along the roads, that could have been a cool 3D element.
0: Yeah, totally. And would have added to the sort of sensationalistic nature of that movie. And had it been made like a few years later when it was at the height of 3D, it could have ended up actually being in 3D. So I did try to find something more positive. (laughs) Um, Edwin Schallert in the Los Angeles Times said, Warner Brothers has smartly proffered a reliable old thriller with many inherent illusions and effects as its first exhibit to show off the three-dimension system. If you aren't hit with a ball, a chair, or stabbed with a sword in some time in the proceedings, you may consider yourself either fortunate or unfortunate, according to your addiction to gruesome excitement. House of Wax doesn't spare anything along this line, but it seldom becomes too extreme, except it will undoubtedly give children nightmares. Nor is anything like a critical appraisal of this innovative film fitting, because 3D still is so much in the experimental phase. The show will cause intense excitement among audiences, unquestionably. So he is reserving his critical judgment, I guess. And and I think his perspective here that this is the right material for 3D. You know, they trotted out this this reliable old thriller with some thrills and chills to make the 3D pop or whatever. I think that makes sense for what you want with a 3D movie.
1: Yeah, the first uh, re- I wonder what you guys uh, recall, but the first movie I remember seeing in 3D was Captain EO at uh, oh. Epcot Center, right? And it was Michael Jackson and a little Ewok type thing, and it was 20 minutes, and that creature was always flying at you, and Michael Jackson was dancing, and uh, was that John Landis? Was that his? Or I don't even know who directed. Probably, you
0: know. yeah, that but, sounds
1: right. Um, but yeah, so like you know, <clears throat> you're utilizing the technology for different things, I guess. Uh, what was the first one you ever saw in 3D? Do you remember?
0: I don't know. It was uh, Francis Ford Coppola who directed Captain EO. Oh by the yeah, way. yeah, he's good. Um, he's good. Yeah.
1: I like him. Yeah, look for <laughs> Captain Eo, Captain EO the final director's cut coming to an Epcot Center near the next year. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: definitely saw Captain EO, although I never went to Epcot Center, so I must have been at the California Disneyland also, um, yeah. which I went to a lot as a kid growing up in California. Um, I don't know if that was the first 3D movie I ever saw. I definitely did see that as a kid, and I feel like we were probably too young to catch the 3D boom of like the early 80s, yeah. which was was mostly about horror movies that we would have been too young to see. Um, so it, it may have been that because really there was very little 3d wise until again, the, the boom that, that was around the time of avatar. So, um, that sounds right. I don't know. Dave, do you remember? I I know I went and saw the,
2: whatever the nightmare on Elm street one was that was in 3d. Um,
0: oh, I saw that too. It was the Freddy's dead. Yes. Yes. I did see that. That might've been mine as well. Yeah. Okay. That's a fun one. (laughs) And that's a terrible movie. Yeah, very much so.
1: Dave, your parents didn't take you to see like Emmanuel in Paris in 3D. <laughs> Possibly. I just don't Yeah. Remember. There was,
0: I guess, I, I haven't looked into it, but I'm sure, especially in the 70s and 80s, there must have been 3D porn in the 80s, oh, right? Now
1: we're now we're talking, Josh.
0: Yeah. What would Vincent Price say about 3D porn? <laughs> oh, look at all that
1: splooge. All right. Your impression <laughs> still still sucks.
0: <laughs> still not good.
1: I yeah. feel like I at least got the attitude, but you know.
0: Um So, so Dave, you picked this movie. Uh, did you see this as a kid? I don't remember. It's one of those movies
2: that I feel like I might've seen, but I I don't remember, but I just love Vincent Price, like just as a figure in horror movies. And of course, you know, in Michael Jackson's thriller, like I, I just love him. And so when I saw this as being something from 1953, I was like, we got to go with
0: that. Yeah, he's great. And, um, I think he, he elevates any of these schlocky movies that he's in with his presence.
1: And, uh. Quite a good host of The Muppet Show.
0: Uh, Oh, I'm glad we can talk about The Muppets again. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think it was like a Halloween-style episode.
0: No, that makes sense. That's totally something that I could see him doing. So, had you seen this one before, Jason?
1: Nope, Josh. uh, Really, other than The Muppet Show, probably haven't seen anything with Vincent Price. Oh, wow. Did you never see, like, Edward Scissorhands? Oh, yeah, I love Edward Scissorhands. Okay, yeah. But that's I mean, Johnny Depp who plays him, Josh.
0: Yes, but <laughs> Vincent Price plays his creator, and of course it plays on his image as a horror guy. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd seen a lot of of Vincent Price horror movies, the Roger Corman stuff and William Castle stuff that he's done, but I had not seen this one. So it was fun to check that out and see the origin of his persona
1: there. I'm going to go totally off the rails here, Josh, but um, I heard that uh, first song from Johnny Depp and uh, and Jeff Beck. And it is so good. I couldn't believe this. I'm like, this has far better than it has any right to be. So awesome movie or recommendation. Check out the Johnny Depp, Jeff Beck collaboration.
0: All right. You you definitely were correct about going far off the rails on that one. So do you have anything about the film House of Wax and its background that you would like to share?
1: Dude, it's 88 minutes long and there was an intermission. Let's talk about that. yeah. Yeah, well, it was because the 3D
0: technology required changing the reels in the projector in the middle of the movie. Okay, we talked about it. All right. Well, then we'll come back. and talk After about- our
1: first intermission.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. We'll do our intermission. We'll change the reels. <laughs> and we'll talk about our general thoughts on House of Wax. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this season on the films of 1953, we are talking about...
1: We're talking about House of Wax starring... Vincent Price! Woo! That was, you, your impression just keeps getting worse. Archie, what
0: are you doing? <laughs>
1: I just made a oh. Edith Bunker.
0: <laughs> sure, yes, House of Wax. So Dave, this is your pick, and you said you had vague memories of it at best. So how did you feel about watching it now? I thought it was great. Like I had so much fun with it. It's
2: very ridiculous. And like, it's so silly and you kind of have to watch it through the lens of like it being a fifties horror movie and like, you know, being very kind of hokey, but um, it's like being in like a, one of those fun, like haunted house tours, like at Halloween time, you know? And, and it's so like the production design is so much fun. Like all the wax statues and all that stuff. There's just, there's a lot of fun here. And he, like I said, he is just great to watch.
0: He is. And I think he carries it. In fact, he's so good that it really highlights how boring everyone else is
1: in <laughs> <Yeah>. this movie. <laughs> it really does ground everything, right? Like, in...
0: Yeah. I mean, because he's the villain. And so for long stretches of the movie, he's not there. And we have to watch uh, Phyllis Kirk as the sort of bland, upstanding female lead of this film and Paul Piccerny as her really even more bland like boyfriend. Eh,
1: And you're saying upstanding, but I question that relationship because when we first meet uh, the boyfriend, Scott, right? He's like with his wife, and then we never see the wife again, but we see those two together all the time, including going to the opening, you know? Wait, I thought that was his mother. No. Oh, well, that's even weirder. No, I thought, I think it was his wife. I thought Wait a
0: minute. Wait a minute. I've, I've completely misunderstood this film. Then Scott lives with his wife, right, Dave? I, I'm not sure now, now the way that you're describing it.
1: Either way, he, either way, he's banging the lady. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Well, well, for whatever reason, for, for whatever it's worth, Wikipedia says it's his mother, but you know, Wikipedia can be wrong. But yet my impression was, that she okay. So what happens here is Sue Phyllis Kirk's character witnesses her roommate Kathy, played by uh, Carolyn Jones, is is dead. She's been murdered by the mysterious disfigured man who, spoiler, is Vincent Price. Ah, <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> um, and so she's traumatized and 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 scared, and the man is chasing her, and so she runs to Scott's house and knocks on the door, and they they kind of take her in and are keeping her there to to keep her safe. And I thought this was completely upstanding, right? This guy is her fiance or boyfriend or something, and he lives with his mother, which is what you would do in 1900 if you were an upper-class doofus. And having sex with her. (laughs) I did not get that impression at all. So I I don't know where you got this, Jason. I mean, you, you, Josh, you briefly threw my entire understanding of this movie into chaos. Film but I think is I'm right. uh,
1: an interpretive medium. <laughs> and, you know, what I interpret it is this guy's having sex with the lady he lives with, who may or may not be his mother. And, uh, you know, if there was a wax statue that he found attractive, I don't doubt that he'd uh, stick it in that too. All right. Well, like we were saying
0: earlier, this movie, that's the David Cronenberg House of Wax. Um, yeah,
1: this is not as kinky as it could be. Anyway, Directly. he is a boring character. They do go yes. to a can-can show once, which she finds, she's like, oh, you know, this is <laughs> too racy for me. You know, and he's like, what are you talking about? I banged my mom. And then uh, they go back and uh, they go to the House of Wax and she uncovers that Kathy is uh, Joan of Arc, right? Joan of Arc. Yeah, And then Vincent Price is like, yeah, I'm going to make you Marie Antoinette. And when I say that, I mean, I'm going to do the murder on you and make you Marie Antoinette.
0: Yes, he wants to take real people and make them into the wax figures. He's done this with his business partner who was attempting to burn down the previous wax museum for the insurance money. And he's done this with some random like attorney or politician or something that's gone missing. And he's turned that guy into John Wilkes Booth. So that's his jam, I guess, is turning
1: turning people into wax sculptures. And he's got, he can't use his hands anymore because right. of the accident. So he's got these two assistants. Uh, one, uh, Igor, played by a young Charles Bronson. Right. <laughs> I'm going to Emmett's fix-it shop to fix Emmett. Yes. <laughs> one yes. of the classics. Thank Simpson. you, wow. uh, that is a classic. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I didn't know that was uh, Charles Bronson, did you?
0: No, I didn't definitely recognize him, and he's not credited. He's as Bronson. He's credited as Charles uh, Buczynski, I think, which is his real name, yeah, and was was the name he used in some of his early uh, roles. So, no, I didn't realize that at all. And he doesn't sound like you just made him sound because he, I don't know if he's he developed sound, his yeah
1: his Bronsonness yet. <laughs> I mean, they could you, they could have remade that the House of Walks with him as the good guy, you know, like as the good guy or yeah, Bronson Price no, role? no, as the good guy who's going to stop it, right? There's a house of Wex and it needs to tumble down or something. You know, it would have been fun. So
0: yeah, I, I suppose. But yeah, he's actually he doesn't sound like that in this movie because his character is mute. So that's yes. probably the reason why. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, a waste of uh, the
0: Charles Bronson uh, voice for sure. Indeed, and then his other assistant, who is uh, I forget what his name was, but he's a he's a drunk, and the police are able to break him by uh, refusing to give him uh alcohol
1: until he uh how simple oh, i love what that. put a, a simple uh, <laughs> hey you want some hooch just tell us who did it
0: yeah well this is a remnant it's interesting having watched the 1933 version because that whole bit, which is ridiculous in this film, is a remnant of the fact that that 1933 movie is a pre-code movie. And so in that movie, the character is a heroin addict, which makes a lot oh, of sense. Oh, that would have been awesome. Wow. But they can't do that in 1953 with the production code, so they have to make him an alcoholic. And
1: but stuff. also, if he was an alcoholic you know, in 1933, I would have bought that more, too, because of prohibition. And, you know, also like after the Great Depression and everything, like the need for alcohol would have been maybe stronger with that character. Although, don't get me wrong, Josh, I'm not underestimating the power of alcoholism in any era. Thank you for
0: that sobering. Uh, public service <laughs> announcement. There actually is a bootlegging subplot in the 1933 version talking about prohibition. So it does come up. But the character uh, that they use his addiction to break him is, is, is addicted to heroin. So it it, it seems a bit more uh, convincing. But Jason, I wanted to also come back to the can-can dance that you're describing. And of course, the reason that that is in the movie is like the paddleball guy, solely for yeah. the purpose of 3D and seeing these, these dancing girls kick their legs at you. And you were sort of dismissive of it, but this was so scandalous. In 1953, looking through like newspaper archives to find reviews, I found at least as many, if not more, articles that were just about the can-can dance and that it was in this movie and how big a deal that was. Wow.
1: Man, there must have been a lot of sexual frustration in the 50s. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that is an understatement.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, I know. Obviously, it's there to titillate. So. Yes. Yes, it is.
0: So, you know, I, I think this movie is, even though it's only 88 minutes, it is a bit slow, especially in the middle, but I think it's got a lot of really good atmosphere. And just that's something I think that Andre de Toth, the director, has done a good job creating. As Dave was saying, the production design, all the wax figures, it looks. Creepy and impressive. There's all these like fog shrouded streets in, which is, I feel like New York is not really this foggy, but they just put fog. Yeah. It definitely
1: looks like Jack the Ripper London. Right. Yes.
0: Yes, it did. Um, And it takes place in 1900. So everybody's in horse drawn carriages and stuff like that. It gives it this old timey feel. So
1: (laughs) I thought it was fun. All the investors, uh, you know, I shall invest in your, your project after a trip. To Egypt, you know, and yes. everything. Um, you know, the best shot for me, Josh, was when Sue finally smashes the Vincent Price character in the head, and that wax uh, mold comes off, and we see his disfigured face. I thought that was a really good reveal.
0: Yeah, it was. And you don't, I mean, maybe you know because it's just plot-wise, it's very obvious who is this disfigured guy running around stealing bodies going to be. Obviously, it must be Vincent Price, but. Like makeup wise, it doesn't really look like him. So you could you could theoretically assume that
1: it was someone else. Like the makeup job in this film is you think no, 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 not gonna give you that one. The makeup's good, but you know he's the guy the whole time. So well, you know,
0: right, you know he's the guy because that's obvious from a plot standpoint. But I feel like just looking at him, you could believe he was someone else. No I
2: would I would say I wouldn't think that he was someone else, but I didn't think the movie could pull off a trick that well you know, being yeah. from the 50s. Like, I thought it was a really cool visual effect.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Dave's I right and I you're wrong, like Josh. All right. <laughs> okay. I'm a, I'm a dupe, I guess, for, <laughs> yeah. this, for this film. Oh, that's fair. I will say that probably audiences in the 50s maybe were more likely to be duped like me. I'm as unsophisticated as 1950s movie-going audiences who had never seen
1: a 3D movie before. Mm. Well, uh, It's a good thing uh, we held your hand through from here to eternity, because that must have been a real, real hardship for you. Yeah, I was so, (laughs) so so confused by everything. um, Should we rate this thing out of five waxy statues? (laughs) I mean, what else could you possibly
0: rate it out of? So, uh, yeah, I'm going to give it I'm going to give it three wax statues. It was fun. Like I say, it gets a bit slow. It's, It's hokey, but I had a nice time with it.
1: Two and a half for me, which this season is an extremely high rating. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. yeah, Jason still can't get on board with the films of 1953. So, Dave, how did you rate this as your pick? I'm going with four. I mean, I just wow. had a really
2: good time with it. I mean, it, it's certainly not perfect by any means, but it's
0: just a fun time. You're yeah, lying. It, no, it is fun. I don't I think four stars is maybe a little much, but Yeah, um, you're
1: lying to yourself and to the audience, Dave. Mm, it mm-hmm.
0: is fun. And I feel like if you saw this in like a 3D revival in a theater, it would be even more fun.
1: Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, but we of course But not, not four stars fun.
0: <laughs> okay. Jason, Don't lie, Dave. You and your are You can burn up one of my wax figures if you'd like.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Dave. stars watched, are
0: melting.
2: Yeah.
1: Dave watched <laughs> it on his uh, movie retreat
2: with Yeah, Dad it was a home theater Gina. setup. So maybe that's giving me the extra little bump. You know? oh, and nice. she loved it
0: too. I saw yeah, on yeah, Facebook. Yeah, we both loved it. You're both yeah. liars. <laughs> Jason, unable to believe that other people <laughs> like movies. <laughs> <laughs> and now our second intermission. Yes, <laughs> we'll come back and talk about the legacy of House of Wax. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about our producer, Dave's pick, House of Wax. And House of
1: they... Wax, starring Vincent Bryce.
0: I, I don't even know. Is that like Richard Nixon, maybe? I don't know what that is.
1: I'm just doing... Just voices now. I feel like you just, just have to
2: do the thriller rap and then
0: you'll get into the spirit. <laughs> yeah. of it's kind
1: of a warm up or something yeah. to get there. I'll work on it. Maybe in oh, the yeah. epilogue, I'll, have, I'll come back with something Thank better. You. Yeah, I'd appreciate when we, that. When we talk
0: about Edward Scissorhands someday, you'll have it. Yeah. So, I mean, we've been talking a lot already about the legacy of this film in terms of really being the catalyst for this boom in 3D that was a big deal in the 50s and then again in the 80s and the 2010s. This was re-released in 3D in 1971 and in 1982. And I feel like this is another movie that if repertory theaters or film festivals ever have like a 3D showcase, this is a standard one that they would
1: include. Hmm. And Josh, I think you also had mentioned how this catapulted Vincent Price, who was kind of moving down the quote unquote star ladder towards like you know, smaller supporting roles, perhaps, and uh, reestablished him as this uh, the beginning of his horror icon phase.
0: Yeah. I mean, he'd had a supporting role, I think, in one of the universal horror movies back in the 40s, but generally was not known for horror at all. And you look at his filmography following this film, and it's almost all horror movies. And a lot of these Horror B movies. Like I was saying earlier, he worked a lot with William Castle. He worked with Roger Corman, especially on all of these adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe works. And it was perfect for him. I don't know if he was one of these people who maybe resented the typecasting after a certain point, because of course he was a serious dramatic actor in a lot of these earlier films. But whether he did or he didn't, he was great at it all the way through, again, all the way through Edward Scissorhands in 1990, which was his final on screen appearance. And people know him from Thriller. I mean, I was I was trying to write down sort of the notable horror movies he was in, and then I just gave up because it was way too many to name. But I love him in Theater of Blood, where um he plays this actor who uh, murders all the critics who give him bad reviews, which I mm. thought was a fun concept, of course. Is that
1: how you want to go out, Josh? <laughs>
0: yes. I want to be murdered by someone who I give a bad review to. That's well...
1: Like... <laughs> Uh, my guess is it's going to be Jamie Kennedy. Yeah, you uh, know what? that cut. is actually
0: a good, that is a very good guess. <laughs> That's mine as well.
1: Hey, hey, Josh, have you or Dave seen any of the pre-horror Vincent Price, uh, you know, dramatic roles?
0: Yeah, I've seen him in some, I mean, where he's, he's usually more of a supporting player, but um, I forget why I've seen, um, Leave Her to Heaven, where he's like, a, I think he's a lawyer and he's usually fine in those films. But I think his presence in the horror movies is really based on this sort of florid, not overacting or hamminess necessarily, but but like the voice. Again, I feel like the voice comes from those horror performances. And that's where he really comes to life. Whereas in earlier dramatic performances, at least that I've seen, it's like, sure, he's good, but you're not going to watch those movies and think, wow, Vincent Price really popped off the screen in that film.
1: Yeah. Do you think there's an equivalent of a Vincent Price today?
0: I mean, probably, you know, the the one thing I was thinking of, and this isn't in horror, but when I was talking about someone who might have resented being typecast is Leslie Nielsen, you know, who was this a serious dramatic actor, but mostly in small parts. And then when he did The Naked Gun, he just became the parody guy for the last part so of his funny. career. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, interesting.
0: Could Bruce Campbell fit the bill maybe a little bit? I mean, but Bruce Campbell has always, like, what
2: was, wasn't Evil Dead like Bruce Campbell's first role? Yeah. But I mean, he did some other stuff, but he always keeps getting pulled back to horror throughout the years. You know? I mean, I think
1: he at this point gets to do plenty of different things, you know? Yeah.
0: And I, I guess I'm thinking Jason probably more along the lines of someone who started as this more serious dramatic actor right. and, you know, got a resurgence because of horror films and I'm sure there is someone that I'm
1: not thinking of, horror, or action, you know, like was right. Dolph Lundgren, like a classically trained actor who is it? I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, Dolph Lundgren is famously like, uh, doesn't he have like a PhD in molecular biology right. or something like that? <laughs>
1: and, and I had always heard, uh, this, you know, as a, as an actor myself, fellas, mm-hmm. um, that, um, Sean William Scott was supposedly like this amazing dramatic actor in you know acting classes, and he was you know going to be that next hot dramatic star. And then American Pie came along, and he became Stifler for most of his career. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I, that's what I mean. But but we didn't know him as a dramatic type beforehand, as opposed to like Leslie Nielsen, like you're saying. Right,
0: right. I think Leslie Nielsen, <laughs> even though it's not horror, is a decent comparison. I guess you could almost you mentioned action. You could say like Liam Neeson who has this resurgence as an actor right. star. He still gets to do serious drama, but not nearly as much. I
1: think um, he kind of just decided to lean into that, though.
0: Yes. Right. But
1: he
2: might be remaking The Naked Gun
1: soon. So.
0: Right. There you go. <laughs> um, and I'm sure Leslie Nielsen leaned into the comedy and Vincent Price leaned into the horror because that's where they were getting work. And why not yeah. go for it? You know, if yeah. you're an actor, like
1: make that money, effort. make that money.
0: Indeed. Indeed. So. We're talking a lot about Vincent Price here because the everyone else in this movie, the other actors are all boring.
1: Well, um, I mean, you know, the uh, especially right now with the resurgence of Wednesday, uh, which I loved on yes. Netflix, Carolyn Jones, uh, who played Kathy in this movie, played Morticia in the original Adams uh, family TV show. And she had a best supporting actor nod for The Bachelor Party, not to be confused with Bachelor Party with Tom Hanks. Yeah.
0: Yeah, not a movie that I'm familiar with, The Bachelor Party, but she did get an Oscar nomination. Um, she was great as Morticia, though. I mean, I even uh, before the uh, 90s Addams Family movies, I remember loving the Addams Family as a kid. And, um, you know, she deserves to be up there with the rest of them. Yeah,
1: I mean, look, all these, for the most part, you have a lot of these uh, people where it's like the first thing you read is like, uh, like, for instance, I wrote down for Roy Roberts, who played Burke, he was in over 900 movies and plays, you know, a lot of this this was that time where you work 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 work. So Right,
0: right. Yeah, Paul Paul Picerni, who plays the boring boyfriend was in tons of movies and TV shows as a character actor.
1: Yeah, The Untouchables but, TV right, show. Right, the untu-
0: the yeah. TV series The Untouchables, he was a major co-star there. Phyllis Kirk also did a lot of smaller roles Thin she man played. TV show. Yeah. Yes. Yes. With Peter Lawford, um, as, as Nick and she played Nora. Did they have an infinite playlist? <laughs> no, that, but that's, that's was that's where those names came from is from mm. the thin man. And, uh, Frank Lovejoy who played the, the, the detective who gets really high billing for some reason, must've been a kind of a bigger deal. He just, he didn't do that much cause he died in 1962. So only a little bit after this, we mentioned Charles Bronson who of all those people became the biggest star, even though yeah. in this movie he has a pretty small role.
1: Um, I want to see this movie with Frank Lovejoy um, called Shack Out on 101. Have you heard about this movie, Josh? No, I don't think so. I think I kind of just skimmed through
0: his filmography. There.
1: I mean, it feels like it's real like pulpy, you know, like romancy, uh, just kind of schlocky, like uh, you can really get into it. The it's an isolated diner on California's 101 highway it provides the backdrop of the story involving nuclear secrets, foreign spies and federal agents. But Ooh. if you look at the cover of the I mean, the poster, it's got none of those things. And it's just got two people embracing and making out with each other, <laughs> making out <laughs> while nuclear
0: secrets are at stake. So that sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So but. um no, I mean other. I mean he was also in the hitchhiker, you know. Like we we got it. These guys did 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 the work, y'all. Yeah, they did. They all did. The Toth um, also directed a ton of movies, you know.
0: He did. And he's kind of this journeyman that we've talked about with some of the other people in this season. This is really his most famous film. Um, he did a couple noir films, Crime Wave and Pitfall that are you know, decently known as noir. And I I saw one of his early films that I found fascinating that I, I wrote an article about a few years ago called None Shall Escape, which I saw at the TCM Festival. And it's an interesting film because it was made in, I think it was 1944, in the midst of World War II. And it's sort of a speculative film about a future in which the war has ended and there are these war crimes trials for former Nazis, which of course is what really happened. But none of that had happened when they made this film. So it was a Mm. fascinating sort of future predictive kind of movie where this Nazi is on trial and he recounts his whole career and how he got to where he was. And it was a really interesting movie. Mm. So that's obviously very, very different from House of Wax.
1: That does sound Um, interesting.
0: So um, I think uh, what we're left with here is... uh, 2005's House of Wax, which is, like I was saying, mi- the original from 33, The Mystery of the Wax Museum is very, very similar to this plot-wise. The 2005 version has almost nothing to do with this plot-wise and just has the title and has a wax museum. It's not even really a museum. I don't even know what it is exactly. Um, but But Dave, you watched this one too. What are your thoughts? I mean, I didn't think it was as
2: bad as its reputation makes it out to be. It just felt like every mid 2000s horror movie that's just like blah. But, you know, mo- most of all, the fact that it doesn't really have much to do with the wax museum is the worst part about it.
0: Yeah. And it's very like you think the House of Wax has is slow. That movie takes like 45 minutes to just get to anything happening. Mm-hmm. And it's far too long for a cheesy horror movie from 2005. Um, and, uh, Brian Van Holt, who plays the villain is no Vincent Price. And mm-hmm. I can never remember him as anything other than the doofus from Cougar Town. So <laughs> that was tough for me to take.
2: His character's name is Vincent,
0: though, by the way. Right. But it has nothing to do with Vincent Price's <laughs> character yeah. from, uh, yeah. But, uh, that movie nominated for three Razzie awards. So <laughs> yeah, that's kind of deserved. Yes. Uh,
1: Jason didn't see it. No, I think you I think we've really extensively covered the entire history of all things wax and houses, Josh.
0: I mean, that's what we do here at Awesome Movie Year. Yes. Right. <laughs> I think you're right. We can wrap this up. So that is House of Wax, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can find our wax likenesses online and on social media. Yeah,
1: or at least an avatar or Oculus Rift type uh, style uh, meta, whatever, leave me alone. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials. Uh, Let's see, uh, my website, go for Jason, uh, needs to be murdered and encased in wax. But perhaps the new website, eatthiscomedy.com will be here soon. Eat This Comedy and the Trivia Party also on Instagram. Don't forget Awesome Movie Year on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. AwesomeMovieYear.com.
0: I am at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, um, which may have a something there soon or now, depending on when this is. <laughs> um, look for it, maybe. Also at JoshBellHatesEverything on Facebook, at SignalBleed on Twitter, and at SignalBleed on Letterboxd. And check out our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together.
2: Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod.
0: Jason, what's coming
1: up in our next episode? Josh, it's a 1953 film and it's a cult classic and it's one I've never seen before, but uh, I know you were very excited for this. Glenn or Glenda?
0: Yeah, it'll be fun to talk about Ed Wood and Glenn or Glenda. So tune in for that and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie U. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter,
2: and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
0: An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.
1: Goodbye from Vincent Price.